Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nahum Siegel Network, NahumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And uh, it's a historic day. Uh, we are recording this uh, on the evening of January 6, 2021, a day that will certainly be remembered in American history. Uh, one of two days that we are... Two times at the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, the beacon of democracy has been uh, breached. It was supposed to be a day when the Electoral College was supposed to vote and confirm our election from 2020. As uh, uncontroversial as that should have been or should be, uh, it was not. It's also the day after the Georgia runoff. So script or the, yeah, I'll give it the postscript to the 2020 election that just happened. And uh, Democrats took control of the United States Senate, giving them control of all three houses of government. Well, not really how the two houses and then the presidency, I guess the White House, the Senate House and the Congress House. So with us this week to discuss all things political uh, going on in the world. We have Anasha Shapiro, our resident expert in uh, in many things uh, political and as well as the skullduggery of politics. Uh, Menasha of the Shapiro Consulting Group, uh, having worked for Republicans and Democrats over the years. A little bit later, we'll be joined by our frequent guest, uh, Bruce Backman, of uh, previously Fox News and Newsmax uh, TV, to give us some perspective as well. But Menasha, a historic inauspicious, infamous, can we say infamous day uh, of uh, U.S. politics has transpired? We usually reserve uh, words like infamous and infamy for days where um, there's a body count. Um, and uh, There is a body count, in fact. Uh, one person has died. We just learned, we just learned that uh, someone did die, so I think we're going to have to call this an infamous day, not a historic day. Um, the beacon, the home of democracy, the shining example to the world of what democracy, cordiality, and the safe transfer of power, uh, which is the hallmark of democracy, was uh, destroyed today. It was overrun by a group of there's really no other way to describe them, domestic terrorists who went to take the capital. Protectors broke windows, climbed over walls, and there was nothing harmless about sitting in a, uh, sitting in the speaker's chair, nothing harmless about uh, symbolically desecrating literally the, uh, the symbol of all, of what makes America and the Western world function. And it's, it is a sad day. And, you know, it was inspired and incited by the leader of the free world. And uh, there it's, I'm still sitting here almost in shock having watched the, uh, what, which, what transpired today. So as we sit, as I said, we're uh, at about 9 p.m. on Wednesday evening. Uh, the Congress has now reconvened 
And I think they've done that appropriately to show that our republic still stands, that our institutions will stand, that a mob, we will not be ruled by a mob. We cannot allow a mob to... Uh, we cannot allow a mob to determine our democracy. But what's sh- shocking and saddening is that, you know, for those of us who have, I mean, my children won't know the difference, but the fact is that I still remember a day that you could literally walk up to the White House when I was younger. You could walk into the U.S. Capitol. And these are things that you can't do anymore. Uh, certainly since 9-11 and other attacks, you couldn't, you can't get anywhere really near the White House. You can't go on the White House grounds. Uh, you can't really waltz yourself right into the Capitol. It takes a lot of uh, work. And that is clearly going to change because it certainly seems that, that they were not – they were woefully unprepared for the idea that thousands and thousands of people were going to march on the Capitol today, um, which in and of itself is, is shocking. That's another story that is going to have to be de- – debated, investigated, and discussed as to what exactly the planning was. I think both the leadership of the House on the Democratic side and the leadership of the Senate on the Republican side really need to uh, have a uh, serious moment of reflection and investigation to figure out what on earth happened in terms of the preparation, because this sadly was predictable um, that there was going to be we knew for days that there were going to be people gathering in the Capitol. We knew for days that they were probably going to be marching towards the Capitol. And we knew and there should have been much better planning for crowd control and how to handle what was uh, what, what was a, a lot of people could have predicted was going to happen. Well, I mean, let me just stop you for a second. Could somebody have predicted that this crowd was going to try and storm the Capitol, that they were going to go into, and, and, you know, the, and I hate to say it, but the riots that we saw over the summer, where a lot of D.C. has been essentially abandoned, the downtown D.C. has been abandoned and boarded up kind of since. I mean, I was there a couple weeks ago during the day, and it was just eerie about how few people there were, partly because of COVID, but, you know, for other reasons, uh, possibly as well, but th- I've never seen any group try and storm the Capitol. Why? Why was this different? I think it's different because we we've seen this sort of festering and billowing to the surface a lot in uh, recent weeks, and really in the years of the of the Trump presidency. Right? We saw limits that were being pushed that had never been pushed before. It starts in Charlottesville. It starts with these uh, big car rallies um, that sort of, you know, election day, try to uh, not storm, but commandeer the uh, Biden and Harris campaign buses. We saw what was going on in states where blue cities in red states where there was attempted, not going to say voter suppression, but voter intimidation. People were coming up the line. And I think it was very telling. And we saw actually uh, New York Times tweeted something that, you know, they were, they were traveling with 
Trump flags. They were traveling with MAGA flags. They were not traveling with American flags. And when they got into the Capitol today, they draped a Trump Keep America Great flag over the balcony in the visitor's gallery in the House chamber and not an American flag. That should tell you exactly what type of crowds we had been dealing with and we've been seeing it. So the idea that today is suddenly so different. They had been billowing this, bringing this close to the surface for I, you know, I, I don't buy it that much. I mean, I hate to say it just because somebody's carrying a Trump flag. And, and I don't love the flag stuff. I'm not, like, into that. I mean, I care more a little bit more about ideas than I do about paraphernalia. But I understand that there is an allure into that. But, you know, car- carrying these flags, I mean, I, I just don't understand how – I don't understand – well, I – I don't know. I, I I I guess I'm lost because this is all so shocking. It's so fresh. It's so it's so insane. Michael, you remember when we were both, you know, you know, young and young and in college, we would collect these things from all sides. These things used to be harmless. We would have this guy's banner. We would have that guy's banner. We have this flag. We would have that flag. Something has changed in recent years, especially when it comes. To this, to this MAGA flag where it's almost become a symbol not of politics but of religion and of your faith. And you are somehow, somehow walking away from, a, from literally your faith if you, if you criticize what that flag represents. And that's exactly what Donald Trump has been doing. He... You know, he's been tweeting more against Republicans in the last three weeks than against Democrats. All right. You want to segue into Georgia? Yeah, well, I definitely want to segue into Georgia because I think the number one reason why the Democrats are now going to rule the Senate is because Donald Trump spent the better part of the last three weeks not campaigning to keep his accomplishments or supposed accomplishments in office. He spent the last three weeks. Okay, campaigning against Republicans, challenging the election, challenging Georgia Republicans to the to the point where the Republicans were either staying home, not trusting the system and emboldening, make more Democrats. You know, they wanted to put a put a stop to this. If you want to look at what we just saw for the first time in history, usually the re-election serves as a referendum on the presidency. We just had literally two referendums on Donald Trump. Okay, one cost Donald Trump the presidency, and one cost the Republican Party the the Senate. Right. Well. Well, and if you would have told me this a month ago, a month ago, we would have agreed that the Republicans were likely going to keep the Senate because this was before Donald Trump literally campaigned against himself. And he campaigned against the interest of the Republican Party. He literally brought the Republican Party down with him. He used his brand of politics to get to the White House. And then his brand of politics cost the Republican Party the House of Representatives in 2018. It then cost him the presidency in 2020. And now in 2021, it has cost the Republicans the, uh, the, the Senate. Every piece of governmental power in three chambers of the in three chambers that people vote on, Donald Trump has 
taken taken away from the Republicans. And you can probably make the argument that he's single-handedly responsible. It's not because Democrats wage some kind of grand uh, theoretical campaign uh, to take him out. Well, I think they did do a pretty good campaign in Georgia. I think they identified, apparently, uh, you know, and we haven't seen all the numbers yet, about 100,000 voters who did not vote in November came out and voted in the runoff, which is quite primarily from heavily Democratic areas, which is quite astounding because usually you have a, a drop off. It's, it's usually the other way around. You have plenty of voters who just don't bother showing up in, in, in a runoff. Uh, you, have to, you, ha- you have to think that Donovan. Not to vote. That's it. That's right. his, his brand of politics, like, depressed his side and brought out the other. Right. Well, it didn't depress his side in a real way. I mean, where, 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 where you still had a significant rural turnout, where you had is that the Republicans, I mean, at least from what I've seen so far, have been absolutely decimated in the suburbs, in the suburban areas uh, in Georgia. And that's really, you know, now that you had that coalition of African-American voters together with some traditional Democrats, together with country club Republicans, uh, if you will. Um, you know, it's it's quite who have really just been turned off so much to Trump. I mean, it's very clear because uh, even in November, the uh, David Perdue ran significantly ahead of Trump uh, in in. Uh, many areas and many suburban areas. And so there were a lot of ticket splitters. You even had ticket splitters in this race, right? We had there because uh, Purdue, uh, David Purdue ran uh, ahead of Kelly Loeffler, which is, uh, which is quite interesting as well. Right. So. But if you saw last night, as the returns were coming in, if you, you know, what if we all watched last night, the returns were coming in. Some things were very clear. The Northern Georgia counties, Right, those that there's this whole sea of red right at, at the top of Georgia, the northern Georgia counties. Before you get to the Atlanta and and Fulton County area, those were all significantly dropped off turnout-wise from November. In some cases, three percent. In some cases, some counties as much as seven percent. There is your difference right there for 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 the entire for the entire state of Georgia. Is because the, they would. They did not turn out red. The red counties, the Republican counties, did not turn out in a way that would have uh, saved the uh, Republican uh, Republicans. In the okay, state. I think we have Bruce Backman joining us. Uh, Bruce uh, of uh, Fox News and Newsmax TV. Bruce, uh, are you there? Oh, we may have lost him already. Look at that. Okay, well, let's go back. Um, Let's go back to Menasha. The uh, I I love uh, remote remote it, uh, discussions. Uh, you know, you can never really tell whether somebody's actually there or not, whether they're all there or partly there. But you know, look, Georgia's going to be incredibly instructive because there really is no reason when you historically, and if you look at historical politics, you look at politics in before the age of Trump and how he's kind of upended a lot of uh, the political norms is that Republicans losing two seats in a runoff in Georgia, that had been kind of a layup for Republicans. I mean, you know, it's just Republicans had all those advantages. Georgia has is usually a red state, right? You have a Republican governor. You have Republican other statewide office holders. You have got two incumbents 
you've got the South, you've got a, a, a well-oiled machine, you've got uh, uh, typically you have you know older voters who tend to be whiter as well, also tend to turn out for for runoffs. So, um, you know, that's really the. Uh, I mean, Georgia Democrats were conservative, whether you were Sam Nunn or Zell Miller, who uh, endorsed uh, President Bush for re-election. Right, but Z- but Zell Miller and Sam Nunn probably would be Republicans these days. So they probably be Republicans. Well, that's true too. But anyway, yes, I, I'm saying, but but there's no reason Republicans should have lost this race or lost both of them. It's a conservative state, and there's been some trends in recent years especially in the urban urban counties and the cities uh, that have been growing, whether it's Atlanta or, uh, or, um, uh, or, or Savannah. You know, the blue areas are getting bigger. And one of the things that you see this trend across the country right now, it's happening in Texas also, the blue parts of traditional red states are getting larger. They're getting people, they're college towns. A lot of them, people are staying and they're just growing. And there's now a significant blue presence in what has been traditionally red state America that the Republicans. Well, it's not just a blue presence. I mean, I think some of this possibly could revert back to the Republicans. But what you have is a large number of high, of well educated suburban. Uh, you know, I look. I mean, this is the irony of of Senator Kelly Loeffler, right? I mean, this is like a remarkable Senate career here, right? She was picked to fill as appointed to fill the retiring uh, uh, Johnny Isaacson uh, term and she had to run immediately. Brian Kemp picked her essentially from what we understand over the objections of President Trump. He wanted Doug Collins. Doug Collins runs a primary against her against the objections of pretty much everybody in the Republican establishment. And then you have this um, you know, you have this jungle primary, which uh, which anybody can go in. The top two vote getters then 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 fight it out. And Leffler is has ha, was picked. Everybody said because Kemp wanted to run alongside a suburban woman who wasn't so conservative. And then she becomes at least uh, I mean the most pro Trump Trump most conservative conservative so much so that she campaigned regularly with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon supportive congresswoman from northern georgia and you know you just see the shift for like does the republican party even care about the highly educated professional uh republicans anymore do they care about them the question is does the republican party care about you you're very being very nice you call them highly educated professional let's just say does the republican party care about conservative traditional conservative voters do they care about traditional conservative politics or are they now the party of the reactionary populist it's two totally you know almost different voter demographics you know they have abandoned what has really been traditional conservatism especially on the uh, on the fiscal on the fiscal side um in the name of embracing what is really this you know populist um, populist, I don't want to say uh, racist, but it's just a populist platform that really, um, you know, 
he's not conservative. That you know everybody you know you know wants they want they're not talking. They want the funding for them. They're not saying the funding is going to blow the budget and going to uh, hurt the overall uh, the debt structure of the country. And then you have this. I mean, we're not talking about conservatives anymore. This is not this is not this isn't Brit Hume. This is why he's abandoning Fox, right? Because the conservatives of Fox do not have a home with Trumpian politics. Well, and then we have this remarkable and I think this really did both Republicans and personally, uh, despite their contortions around it, uh, the two thousand dollars. Okay, which, of course, if you're a good conservative, you don't go for that because you don't break the bank on on welfare payments. I'm just giving you the conservative spin. I think, truthfully, the two thousand dollars would have been pretty good politics, uh, considering the thing. The line is the president supported the two thousand. The president threw in with with the Democrats on that one. So once that happened, you got to just go ahead and pass it. McConnell. I mean, I hate to say it. Once it's there, you got to go ahead and do it. And they had to go ahead and say, "Okay, we got to support it." And and then it didn't happen. Like, there's no better. There's no better politics than sending voters two thousand dollars. Yeah, Donald Trump understands that. But the conservatives are the the actual conservatives. The actual conservatives blocked that because it betrayed, you know, the last bastion of principle that the Republicans in the Senate had. The combination, you know, gave an opening for the Democrats to, uh, you know, sneak by and to win two seats. Okay, so now we're going to have to discuss legacy for a second. Okay, this is what this is essentially where we are. Donald Trump, one term president. Um I mean, I think we're kind of out of options right now. It seems pretty clear as as the Congress has reconvened that they are not going to be uh, turning down the electors of any state in the end. Um, I mean, especially after what happened today. So, I mean, I think that's pretty shocking. And he's kind of left in the White House. You know, people have resigned already. Um uh, the the chief of staff, the former press secretary of the uh, and the former White House press secretary Stephanie Grisham resigned. Robert O'Brien and and Rick Grinnell and other officials were like were tweeting against the protesters, um, you know, and talking about that. So they were, um, you know, I mean, I don't. We, we got two weeks left. Now what? I mean, what happens? What happens now, now that this has happened, now that Washington has been shaken by, to its core, by this riot? Well, this is, this is partly the problem with the way uh, Donald Trump governed. He governed, when you come in to become a president, right, there's two things that could happen. You can take over and handle Washington, or Washington can handle you. And what Donald Trump did was he just essentially ignored the the traditional Republican establishment, surrounded himself only with loyalists and yes-men and family and people who could not um, even internally uh, counter him, internally check him, internally um, 
present another point of view. He only surrounded himself with people who were uh, essentially yes men. And now there's really nobody left to even guide the country, let alone defend him, right? One of the things you saw with, um, by the time Bill Clinton was impeached, all of the staff, because he came from the outside also, Washington uh, did a number on his on him the first two years he was in office. But by the time he got impeached, he had begun to, he had learned how to work Washington and how to work with the establishment Democrats so that they all stood up to defend them, even in the face of impeachment, even when he deserved to be rebuked. He, Donald Trump did not have that. He had some senators who did what it took to sort of get through the day. But even now, these those senators finally, you know, the Mitch McConnells of the world, the Lindsey Grahams of the world have finally said enough. And you see now today there have been resignations. There are people who want to resign. There's really nothing left other than Donald Trump and his and his telephone, which has been disabled by the social media services for the last, for the next 12 hours because they say he's not helping the situation. And if you saw today's video, you can probably make that argument. So there's really nobody that, in terms of legacy, there's nobody left to defend what him do, because he's forced everything. What does the Twitter president do without Twitter? That is a good question. It has been the only way he has communicated to the American people, to his base, for the better part of the last eight years even long before he was president. This is how he got his political message out. And we see that he is prone to these rage fits and he cannot, for the next 12 hours, like tonight when the whole, when he's watching democracy in action against happen against his will, where he's watching his own vice president who stood up for democracy today um, and literally put out a, a letter that said no, I'm not good that he's not going to uh, do what Donald Trump asked for. I think it's going to be a pretty difficult two weeks. Right yeah, now. I, you know, I, and I'm just some, getting there are some people talking about the amendment there. There are people there are members of Congress who are talking about impeachment. Impeachment is not far fetched because there's still a uh, there's one remedy that you can do through impeachment. That you can't do through any any other mechanism, and that is to bar him from future office. And we'll talk about twenty twenty four. That might be that. Might I'm not be sure exactly how you do that, but I do want to point out that we've talked about some resignations. White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews has resigned. Social Secretary Ricky Nissetta has resigned. Apparently, uh, Robert O'Brien, who I said you know had tweeted earlier. Um, about the about what was going on and the uh, the siege of the Capitol, uh, considering resigning as well as Deputy National Secretary Matthew, Matthew Pottinger and Deputy Chief of Staff Chris Lydell are all considering resigning, according to CNN. Um, clearly, you know these names don't get out there; they don't get out there to reporters about that without any pushback in the stories. Um, if there's no truth to it, um, that truthfully could be entirely disastrous for the country. To have this essentially the White House staff walk out even with two weeks left. Um, I mean, it's just the consequences are huge. Every day 
in the White House every day in the nation is 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 critical. I mean, so much can happen around the world. We can't just abdicate government here. I know that the president has been focused very much on his own electoral legacy and saving the election to uh, but. You know, I mean, in the closing, you know, in the closing, our closing moments, Menasha. I mean, there's a lot at stake here. There, there is very much a lot at stake, and I think this is the pitfall you have when your when your politics become campaigning against government, calling everything you don't like a deep state conspiracy. People tend not to realize that every day in the White House, there's paper being passed through. Orders are getting signed. Things are happening. The situation room, right? Things are not small. They're not trivial. They matter, right? The rule of law, the operation of government, that's what makes the democracy work. And when your politics uh, talks it down to the point where nobody values it, this is what ends up happening. People have to you know, make very difficult choices. You know, should we stay with some with a situation that talks down government, or do we stand up for principle and the rule of law and what's right and what's right? This could be very disastrous for the country for the next two weeks. If I'm an enemy of the United States, I I, I would certainly, uh, you know, God forbid, I don't want to suggest it on the air. But, uh, yeah, let's not let, let, you know, let let's not go there. Um, and I just want to. Uh, give a shout out to um, a newly elected as we close out our, this uh, infamous and historic day. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to the Congresswoman from Florida, the young, uh, from uh, Northern Florida, who is flying. And I blanking on her name right now. And I apologize for that. uh, Who has decided to fly the Israeli flag outside her office, which is right next to our good friends, Rashida Tlaib, um, which is a great uh, testament to the resilience of, uh, of Congress and standing up for the one democracy, the one true democracy in the middle East when uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, tends to stand up only for uh, tyrannical dictatorships and other forms of repression. So, uh, so I think that's that's incredible. I think we all need to applaud that. And if I could just add one, one, one thing that was also a new member of Congress, uh, from the Bronx, Richie Torres, who is an unapologetic, super progressive, who is also an unapologetic. That's right. Said he would not join the squad because they have, uh, he openly, um, brags about having gone to the, you know, gone to Tel Aviv. He is, he's truly, uh, truly a friend. And I, you know, if we're going, to, I want to acknowledge the, the congresswoman from Florida, but we must acknowledge. Uh, you okay, that's it for this week here on Spin Class, a day that shall live in infamy in uh, U.S. history. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, I thought we would have the electoral college put to bed. We'd have the elections of the Senate put to bed. But uh, look, politics is always interesting. It's uh, it's a rough day. It's something our country will endure. Our country will survive. Our country is great. God bless America. See you next week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. 